He'll be okay. All right, let's pray, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your grace to us this morning. We thank you for the, the nice weather this weekend um, and the, the changing to spring, even if just for a time. It's a welcome change, and we thank you for it. Lord, as we open up your word today and finish this series, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and submit our hearts to the truth contained in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You made it. There you go. So today we are finally finishing up our Sunday School series on, through the topic of complementarianism. And I thought there might be applause for that. I don't know. Maybe you like it a lot. Um, and today we're going to be going through chapter 8 of DeYoung's book, Men and Women of the Church, where he addresses several popular objections to the complementarian position. Um, but before we dive into this chapter, I think it would be good for us to be reminded why something like this chapter is needed in the book. And really, this is one of the main reasons we decided to embark on a series on this issue. Because if you remember all the way back to my first lesson, which I'm sure all of you remember every word of that, um, but in that first lesson, I talked about current threats to complementarianism, and we talked about threats from the world and threats from within the professing Christian community. And it's that second threat, threats from professing Christians who reject, reject complementarianism, that this chapter primarily seeks to address. DeYoung takes on five popular arguments that seek to refute the teachings of complementarianism. And really what I want us to see before looking into these arguments is the opportunity we have this morning. So we have a wonderful opportunity to become equipped with responses to these popular arguments against what we would see as clear biblical teaching. And the reason this opportunity is so important is that in our current cultural moment, these beliefs are under direct attack. And I really can't emphasize that enough. So it's very likely that as you engage the lost around you and even engage many professing Christians, you're going to encounter some of these arguments against the complementary view of, of men and women. And we have an opportunity to learn good refutation to these arguments so that we, we're not caught flat-footed in, in many of these debates or discussions that are happening around us, which is important as we defend our faith and the biblical design for men and women. But another benefit of this chapter is not solely for defending our positions against opposing arguments, but also actually strengthening our confidence in the complementarian position, which I've argued throughout this series is the, is the most faithful to the biblical teaching. So this is just my observation, but given our the current cultural climate we live in, where many of the biblical truths regarding men and women are under attack from the broader culture, I think a fairly typical response for the Christian to have, not at all times, but sometimes, 
a response a Christian can have is to begin to doubt if the complementarian position is true. You know, we're, we're inundated with all of this media, news co- coverage, art, even my beloved sports, that are promoting a message and worldview that stands in opposition to the biblical picture of what it means to be a man and a woman. So inevitably, the danger is we begin to believe some of these things. Maybe not even consciously or purposefully. And we begin to have doubts creep into our mind after a bombardment of contrary beliefs we experience daily. And we can begin to doubt if what God has clearly revealed in his word is true. And some of these arguments against complementarianism over time start to make more and more sense to us and become more appealing to us and where we, we, we over time eventually drift away from biblical truth. And a chapter like this in DeYoung's book can serve as a good splash of water to the face to, to alert us, to, to wake us up to the truth that what the world is selling isn't actually true. It's not true. And walking through and studying these responses to common critiques of complementarianism can, and I've prayed this week it will, but it can give us greater clarity and confidence in the biblical teaching on gender roles and sex. And it can stop any potential drift away from these teachings. So now as we dive into the chapter, you may notice that some of what we go through is going to be repeating what we've already talked about in previous lessons, as there will be quite a bit of overlap. But it will be to our benefit, I believe, to, to go through some of these positions and responses another time. So three of the objections to complementarianism, complementarianism that DeYoung addresses are exegetical or, or biblical objections, and two of them are other type of objections. So. The first objection is Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28, you can open there if you want. So in that verse, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And from this verse, there's an argument against the complementarian position that there are no distinctions and no role differences between men and women. And the argument goes something like, unlike Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, which were specific teachings to a specific cultural context, this text here is clearly transcultural. And therefore, it should be founda- the foundational verse we go to when thinking about men and women in the church. As DeYoung says of this type of argument, proponents of it would say, nothing can be understood about men and women apart from this verse, and every verse must go through Galatians 3.28 in order to have validity. So in that sense, it is the most important verse on gender distinctions for these, for these Christians promoting this argument. And what they claim this verse clearly teaches is that Paul obliterates gender distinctions and gender-specific roles. 
by saying there is now no male and female, as we are all one in Christ, one in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction anymore. Now, there's, there's several problems with this argument, and DeYoung helpfully shows us. First is that it's pretty arbitrary and questionable to make Galatians 3.28 the, the foundational verse of the role of men and women that all other verses must flow through or go through or be interpreted through. Why? Because we've already talked about at length, and I think we've proven in other texts, like, like 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, which explicitly talk about the role of men and women in the church were not exclusively culturally bound. In other words, we saw that there were teachings or principles that are universal in those texts. They, they, they aren't culturally bound as is claimed. So if that is true, then this argument that Galatians 3.28 is the only text on gender roles that isn't culturally bound just doesn't follow. We have to take into account all of the New Testament and biblical data on gender roles and distinctions. And more, the, more to the point is, is actually interpreting Galatians 3.28 this way, the way I just outlined, actually doing that will obliterate Paul's other teachings on male and female roles and the other parts of his letters, which we're going to see in a moment. But even if that argument is true, that Galatians 3.28 should be the foundational, the, the fundamental verse that we interpret all other verses through, does it actually mean that there are now no gender distinctions whatsoever for those in Christ? Is that what Paul is intending in this section of Galatians? And I think you can probably guess DeYoung and my answer is, is no. It doesn't mean that. DeYoung in this section gives, I think, a really helpful description of the context of that Paul was writing in, in this verse in the book of Galatians. Paul is addressing the issue in this portion of the letter of whether Gentile believers had to live like Jews under the Old Covenant law to be saved, which gets to the larger question of what it means to be a true Jew in the first place. Do we receive the Spirit by the law or believing by faith? And DeYoung writes that Paul's clear answer to these issues is that the Galatian church is that we are justified and declared right before God through faith in Christ alone not by our works or, or conforming to the law. However, as DeYoung points out, there were some in the Galatian church that were, that were infiltrating and, and believing and teaching this error that, that Jews and Gentiles were on, on different spiritual levels, which is where Galatians 3.28 comes in, where, where there Paul is arguing that, no, we, we are all believers. We are all one in Christ. Which leads to the good question of what does it mean that we are all one in Christ? Or, for purposes of this discussion, in what way is there neither male or female? And part of my argument goes back to the hermeneutical question of using all the New Testament data to help us interpret Scripture, or to, to, to have Scripture interpret Scripture. So if Paul makes gender distinctions and role distinctions between men and women in the church and home, 
which I think he clearly does in other letters, then that should come into our interpretation of this text. So another way to think about this is that Paul can't mean something here that would contradict all of his other teachings and his other letters. Namely, that men and women are different and have different God-given roles to fulfill from creation. De Young puts it like this. He says, Nowhere in Paul's letters do we get the smallest hint that male and female have ceased to be important categories for life and ministry. So with that in mind, we go back to the question then. What does Paul mean by there is neither male or female? So by remembering the context of the letter... We can see, as DeYoung points out, that Paul is reminding the Galatians that when it comes to our justification before God, when it comes to our our union with Christ, the markers of sex, um, ethnicity, and societal station, or or job, or or place in society, they're, they're of no advantage when it comes to justification and union with Christ. That is Paul's point. So there's no distinction based on ethnicity, sex, job status, on who can be justified or who can have union with Christ. We're all equal in that sense. Men and women both stand condemned under the law. Both are justified by faith in Christ. Both are set free from the bondage of the the law. Both are children of God. Both are in union with Christ. In that sense, and I think only that sense, is Paul saying there is neither male or female. DeYoung writes, Paul's point is not that sexual maleness and femaleness are abolished in Christ, but that sexual difference neither gets one closer to God nor makes one farther from Him. So that's, that's the simple answer to objection number one. Any questions or comments? Yes. <clears throat> All right, objection two. Objection two deals with another verse from Paul. You can turn there. This one's in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.21 is the particular verse. I'm going to start reading in verse 18 for context. Paul writes, do not get drunk with wine, for this is, that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this passage comes right before the text Chance led us through um, on on marriage roles in Ephesians 5. And the objection to the complementarian view is that in verse 21, Paul says there needs to be a mutual submission between Christians. And because of this, verse 21, then, then verse 22, where Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. That, that this command from Paul is said in the context of verse 21, where there's a mutual submission between husbands and wives. So the idea is Christians' mutual submission in verse 21 cancels out differences in, in marital responsibilities and authority in marriage, in the marriage relationship in some way. 
because we all must submit to each other. That's what Paul's saying in verse 21. So the young asks in, in his chapter, is this a faithful reading of the text? Is this the best way to, to read what Paul's doing in verse 21? And again, his answer, my answer is no. DeYoung points out that the major key to understanding verse 21 of Ephesians is to look at what comes after it. And I think that's exactly the right way to interpret this verse. So we see following Paul's writing to to submit to one another, he lists a series of relationships within a congregation and the proper roles of authority in those relationships. Wives should, should submit to husbands, children obey their parents, and slaves obey their masters. And DeYoung points out that, that Paul has in mind specific relationships when he commands a, a mutual submission. And that is key, I think, that's key to understanding this text, because Paul obviously isn't then meaning that there, there's no distinction in who submits, and who submits to who and who obeys who. Because by some of these interpreters' logic then, who see no distinction in the submission, they would have to conclude that a a Christian child shouldn't obey their parents. Rather, there should be an equal submission between the child and parent. That's what follows. And if verse 21 means there's an indiscriminate, completely... Um, equal, completely egalitarian submission to each other in the church and the home. The point Paul is actually making in verse 21 is Christians must submit to those who are in authority over them. Wives to, to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. DeYoung writes, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means that we submit to those whose position entails authority over us. So some Christians will say, what Paul is calling for is not a submission per se, but he's actually just calling for a generic and respect, um, a generic love for, for others. But I, mean, I would just simply say that is not what the word submission means in these verses. DeYoung points out this word submission is used 37 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to a relationship where one party has authority over another. And he lists several of these examples in the book, if you want to go look for for his proof for that claim. So I think the the best, the, the most faithful way to interpret this portion of Ephesians 5 is see is to see the verses that describe authority and submission between different relationships, which ends all the way in chapter 6, verse 9, all those relationships as a description or what Paul has in mind when he says in verse 21 that Christians are to submit to one another. So another way to say this could be that submitting to one another based on, on the context means submitting to others according to the authority and order established by God, specifically in the church and in the home, as reflected in the examples he gives in the following verses, chapter 5, 22 to, to chapter 6, verse 9. So any questions, comments on, on that explanation of Ephesians?
you're beginning to see it, I think, <laughs> a little bit. So before we get to the last biblical argument or objection that DeYoung addresses, in Objection 3, he deals with the issue of slavery um, and how some relate this slavery to the male, female, and female roles. And I will just say this is a very interesting argument. And maybe the hardest egalitarian position to, to argue against, um, although I still think it's wrong, there's, there's just a certain emotional factors, and it's a pretty rhetorically powerful argument. And the argument is that the New Testament gives household codes or, or how the relationships and roles in the home should be ordered. And in these codes, like we just saw in Ephesians 5 and 6, there are commands for, for wives to submit to her husband's authority. And there's also commands for slaves to obey their master's authority. And if slaves' obedience to their masters is cultural and not universal, then so also wife's submission to her husband is cultural. So some will argue that just as God did not create the institution of slavery, but just regulated it, the same is true for male headship. He, he regulated that reality in an ancient patriarchal cultural context. And even though the New Testament doesn't overthrow these patterns and relationships or, or outlaw them outright, it does encourage equality and respect for all people that would one day lead to, full, to the full emancipation of slaves and women in the future. The implication being, obviously, that slavery was overthrown in our society. So too should male headship in the church and the home. So do you see that, that argument that they're, that they're doing? It's pretty clever. Um, and on the surface, I think this argument may look like it has quite a bit of traction. But DeYoung wisely starts off with a, re a rebuttal to this objection with an assessment of the Bible's take on slavery. So first, we need to recognize that it is true that, that the Bible never condemns slavery outright. But there's a major difference in the ancient institution of slavery and what many of us think when we hear the word slavery, which is a race-based slavery right, of the North American slave trade. Because that, that was not the case in the ancient world. Ancient slavery was not about race or, or ethnicity like it was in, in our American context. But to be fair, just because it wasn't a race-based institution, ancient slavery was also not something that was necessarily good in society. There were, there were great injustices that occurred um, as a result of ancient slavery. And, and Roman slavery. DeYoung points out, as many historians have, that ancient slavery, especially in the Roman context, was dehumanizing and unbearable and, and in some cases. Now, when you study history, it's, it always gets complicated because at the same time, slavery in the ancient world was not always undesirable, which may sound a little contradictory or, or confusing, but some persons actually sold themselves into slavery to escape poverty and, and living on the street. Others entered slavery with the hope of paying off debts. 
or even with the ability of one day becoming a Roman citizen. And a big point de Young emphasizes is that slavery in the ancient context did not have to be a permanent condition. It could be a process to a better lot in life, just a, a way to move up the ladder, essentially. And so for this reason, some have argued a better translation for our modern ears who have a particular idea of what slavery is, right, in, in our historical context, but a better translation of this idea would be something like indentured servitude or a more servant-to-master relationship, or even employee-to-employer, which then this verse then still very much applies to us in our current context, right? But the question can still remain, why didn't Paul or Jesus denounce the institution of slavery or, or the practice of slavery if there was injustices occurring? And for one, and this is really big, not just for this discussion, but for, for our politi political engagement as Christians in general, but for, for one, the goal of the New Testament church was not political or social revolution. The church did not exist, and I would argue still doesn't exist, primarily to upheave or overthrow institutions that men create, unjust as they, they may be. Now, to be clear, as the young points out, political and social change did follow Christians as they gained influence in society. Um, the more Christians there were in society, the, the more they, they entered into governmental office and into institutional places of power, good things happened. Righteousness did flow from that. So we could say the world became a better place because of Christian influence. I think that's a, an undeniable fact. But what we're saying is that the primary goal was always spiritual for Jesus and Paul. They proclaimed a message of faith and repentance and reconcilia reconciliation with God. And they didn't address every political and social issue of the day. So this is one of the big reasons that, that DeYoung gives, I think is right, that slavery isn't dismantled in the New Testament and why there's these codes for, for slaves and masters' relationship. But that doesn't really answer the, the question, because the, the objector to complementarianism could, still could say, sure, they didn't explicitly dismantle slavery, but the New Testament planted the seeds necessary that would one day bring about a more egalitarian society, a more equal society. So in a way, similar to slavery in the 19th century and the American context being dismantled, this is now occurring today with female equality, even in the, ro the roles of, of the home and the church. Right? It, the, the idea they're, they're trying to get at it, that egalitarianism is a natural outworking of the biblical position, of biblical truth. And this is where we need to show that even though the Bible never condemns slavery, it never condemns slavery explicitly, it also never condones it either. And according to de Young, the Bible certainly never commends slavery. So we would say that slavery is never celebrated as God-given, like the gift of children or, or, or like the marriage relationship. 
Slavery was not a pre-fall creational order institution like marriage and the family. And that is really the, 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 the crux of de Young's rebuttal, that slavery is not like marriage or the family and that it is never celebrated as part of God's good, good design and creation. It was a regulated institution that God allows for in a fallen world broken by sin. So do you see the difference? So the egalitarian charge then that, that biblical marriage roles and the, the command from Paul for wives to submit to their husbands will one day become obsolete just like slavery did. It just doesn't follow because unlike slavery, marriage and family roles are rooted fundamentally in the created order in a pre-fall context which is good, which is a good context. These are intrinsic goods in a way that is just not true for slavery. So as, as rhetorically powerful as that argument is about slavery and, and a more egalitarian society, I don't think it's fully convincing, mainly because of the pre-fall nature of gender roles and gender distinctions, which is part of God's good created design before sin entered the world, unlike slavery. Any questions, comments about that tough one? Yeah, yeah I think they, they would view the, what, what is called the household codes, so say like Ephesians 5 through 6, and slavery is mentioned in those codes with marriage and the family. So I think that's where they're making the connection, that Paul is connecting these in his mind because he's listed right after uh, children's obedience to parents and wives to husbands. But I, I tend to agree with you that it's a, it's a bit of an arbitrary move, and it doesn't actually follow if you, if you look at the fundamental nature of the, the differences of those relationships because they're different. Um, and I would argue that the we have to emphasize the, the big difference is that family, marriage, is a pre-fall good created in the garden as good. Slavery, bond servant, employee, all of that is a post-fall regulation of having an ordered society in a world full of sin. But I think you're on to something. Yeah, yeah. that's a helpful word that Paul's, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul's intention in Ephesians is um, part of our submitting to one another in these different spheres of authority is, um, oh, what did you say? It's what Paul says. Yeah, out, of out of reverence for Christ, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good word. Anything else? Objection number four, which is a lot of many objections. Um, but the fourth objection is another argument that is dealing with Scripture, um, which I like better. Um, and that is the objection that there seems to be, well, there actually is, a, a, a lot of women engaged in ministry in the Bible. So don't all those women 
engaging in ministry in the Bible prove complementarianism wrong is basically the argument. And some would claim that by looking at some of these women in ministry in the Bible, it proves their claim that there are no inappropriate positions for women to hold in formal ministry. So think of, think of like a teaching pastor, senior pastor, or a pastor in general. They, the argument would be, if you look at these women and the Bible, it defends that position that, that women can do um, anything in formal ministry. So what DeYoung does, which I think is helpful, is goes through a list of some of these popular examples, egalitarians use, of women in the Bible, and that, that, that proves their claim, right? Again, the claim that women can do anything a man can do in formal ministry. And he just goes through each of these and lists essentially why they're wrong. And the first being an Old Testament woman, Deborah. And we've already talked about Deborah when we talked about the Old Testament. And as we saw in that study, Deborah appears to be a glaring exception to the rule of women not holding formal leadership in the Old Covenant, in, in the Old Testament. She was a prophetess, a judge, and oversaw a season of victory and peace in Israel in Judges chapter 4 and, and 5. But DeYoung points out that she fulfilled these roles in distinct ways to her male counterparts, which is important. So first, she is the only judge in Israel's history with no active military function. Instead, she instructed Barak to conduct the, the military maneuvers, but she didn't partake in them. Barak is the one who leads the, the 10,000 soldiers into battle. Second, we see that Deborah willingly handed over the leadership over to Barak and then, and then shamed Barak for his hesitation to lead the army, which is big. Third is whatever authority Deborah and Barak had over Israel and its army, she did not have a priestly or teaching authority, which is what Paul prohibits women doing in, in the New Testament. So Deborah was a, a heroic and resourceful woman who played a big, vital role in Israel's history, no doubt, but I don't think she can be used as a paradigm of women serving in formal pastoral ministry roles um, because she never had that type of role in the nation of Israel. Now, could you use Deborah? I've heard this argument before. Could you use Deborah as an example of a woman leader in, in governmental or, or other societal institutions, societal leadership roles? I think there's more precedent for that than pastoral roles, for sure, but I don't think it necessarily, necessarily follows. And I think Christians are, are free to disagree on, on about the wisdom in, in that. The next woman, or in this case, women that DeYoung addresses is prophetesses in general. Prophetesses. And DeYoung notes that there are several women that are called prophets or prophetesses in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we can note that female prophets carried out their ministry in a way, in ways that were different than their male counterparts. So first, remember, they prophesied more privately than the male prophets who held more public forms of ministry, like, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who, who declared the word of God for everyone to hear. We see Deborah 
and a, and a prophetess like, like Huldah, they prophesied privately, so not publicly. So I don't think we can make a direct connection between Old Testament female prophets who declared the word of God privately to the public office of pastor who declares the word of God to all publicly. I think there's a, there's a difference. Now for New Testament female prophets, we need to remember that Paul does not equate prophecy in the New Testament with the teaching ministry of the word. So that's really important. Um, so I'm going to say it again. Paul does not equate prophecy in the New Testament with the teaching ministry of the word. Remember, it was the evaluation of these prophecies that was the teaching of the word, the, the evaluation of whether the prophecy was true or false, or the declaration of whether or not the prophecy was true. That was the authoritative teaching act reserved only for men. So we can say confidently that the prophetesses in the New Testament, like, like Philip's daughters in Acts 21, or the, the female prophets in the Corinthian church, were not the same thing as, as preachers or authoritative teachers of God's word. I think the closest parallel we have in, in our context, for those of us who believe prophecy has ceased now as a spiritual gift, but the closest par- parallel that I could think of is probably the public reading of God's word, a, a declaration of God's word which we would all recognize as a lot different, right, than, than teaching or preaching God's word, right? Just saying God's word or, or reading God's word, is, there's a difference in doing that than teaching or preaching God's word. So next is Priscilla. Priscilla is a very popular lady in these debates. Priscilla is a woman listed three times in the book of Acts, and she's always listed before her husband Aquila, who I may have thought was a female for a long time in my Christian life. Um, Some make quite a big deal of her name being before Aquila's, as if this is proof that she is the head or the leader in her marriage relationship because she's listed first. I think that's just a pretty massive stretch and there, there could be several reasons why her name was listed first that has nothing to do with um, leadership function in their marriage or the leadership dynamic in their marriage. Um, but we do see in, in Acts 18.26, Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos, who's a man, on the ways of God, is what the text says. So the claim is that in Priscilla we see a woman teaching and exercising authority over a man. Now, it's clear that that Priscilla and her husband Aquila instructed Apollos and corrected some of his teaching in private. That that did happen. And I would even concede that Priscilla could have been doing some of the correcting given that her name is in the verse. It, It doesn't just say Aquila instructed Apollos, right? But I don't think this constitutes a violation of 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority over men, because there Paul is talking about the public authoritative teaching ministry of God's word in the gathered church. The instruction given to Apollos was given in private, not a a public teaching setting. And I do think from this verse, you're, you're well within biblical bounds to make the claim 
that women can instruct men in private on matters of the scriptures and doctrine. That's a debated claim, but I, I'm pretty convinced by it. There's other complementarians who disagree. I don't see that as a violation of 1 Timothy 2. But I would also say that Priscilla instructing Apollos with, with her husband Aquila was not exercising authority or teaching over men. So Priscilla's very popular. That, that argument is an extremely popular argument, and you'll probably hear it eventually if you talk about these things enough with people, which I don't know if anyone does, but you might. Next is Phoebe. Paul commends Phoebe as a diakonos, that's the, the Greek word of the church in Romans 16, and this could potentially mean that Phoebe was a deaconess, a female who held the office of deacon, or it could mean that she was a deaconess not in terms of an office, but in terms of a servant more generally. That word could mean either thing, which DeYoung points out in the context of the letter, that word is, is sort of ambiguous for us. And complementarians thus have come down in, in different places on what Paul is meaning here. Is Phoebe a servant generally or a formal deacon? That's basically the question. In either case, for our purposes, there's, there's no indication in the text at all that Phoebe, the, the recognized servant of the church, was a teacher or leader over men. So she can't really be used, I think, as evidence to prove that women should have authoritative teaching roles within a church. All right, one more woman in the New Testament, maybe a woman, Junia. So we see Junia listed in that same chapter, Romans 16 and verse 7, where Paul hails Andronicus in Junia as outstanding among the apostles. And some will take this to mean that Junia was an apostle, as in one of the twelve. Therefore, women can have authoritative roles in the church because Junia did. She is an example of a woman having an authoritative role. A few issues with this argument. Three, three issues. First, it is not very clear that Junia is even a woman. And DeYoung and other New Testament scholars argue that it is more likely Junia is a man based on the, the Greek um, language and the Greek word for her name, his name, whatever, his or her, this one would say. But that, one, that part is debated. There, there is quite a lot of debate on whether Junia is a male or female. Second, the phrase outstanding among the apostles Outstanding among the apostles might actually suggest that Junia was, was simply held in high esteem by the apostles, not that he or she was the one of the most outstanding of the apostles. So you see that distinction, that, that possible? She could just be held in high esteem by the apostles, not that she is one of the best of the apostles. So Junia could be recognized for his or her service by the apostles. Third, even if we concede Junia is a woman, and that Paul is referring to her, to her as an apostle, so concede the first two points, it doesn't necessarily follow that she was an apostle like the 12 apostles, because that word apostle can be used in a less technical sense, not to refer to the office of apostle, but just to mean a messenger or representative. So for all those reasons, I think it's a pretty big stretch 
to say that Junia proves a New Testament, New Testament example of female authority in the church. And, and for time's sake, we're going to skip the other two examples that Dion gives. I think they're, they're relatively obscure and not convincing. But you can read, them, read about those if you want in his chapter. So any questions, comments about objection number four, women in ministry in the Bible? I don't think so. Verse 7. Yeah, they were well known to the apostles. So that phrase could be translated in different ways. That's the debated phrase. I mean, I think it means fellow prisoner. I don't know. I don't know what you would be misunderstanding. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the that's the debated phrase that I was I was talking about, for sure. Let me see if I can find. Um, I can't remember the exact phrasing that an egalitarian would use. Or, yeah, Blake, do you know? That's a lot better described than me. There you go. All right, let's go on to the last objection, um, which may be the hardest to address, I think, because it's, it's rather emotional sometimes. And that is, what if a woman is gifted and feels called to pastoral ministry? What if a woman is gifted and feels called to pastoral ministry? The argument goes, surely we can't deny how God has gifted and given women a calling to teach and exercise authority over men in pastoral ministry. Surely we can't deny that. Um, To do so would be denying God's plan for that woman, for that woman's life. Very emotional argument. So let's start with the issue of calling first because I think it's a pretty clear and cut response. And I'm departing with the young a little bit here. Not that I disagree. I'm just going to go a little bit further. Personally, and this is my opinion for the next couple minutes, so you take it for what it's worth, I'm rather skeptical of any language of calling when it comes to pastoral ministry, whether for men or women. I think the New Testament emphasis is much less on something we would call calling and much more on desire to be an elder and having the, the gifting and, and character quality necessary to be an elder. Now, having said that, I, I, I don't think calling language is wrong per se. It's just not the New Testament emphasis. But if we're going to talk about calling, which has been uh, historically the way Christians have talked about this, um, the Reformed tradition has typically distinguished between an internal and an external calling which I think is very important for this argument. The internal is the individual's personal sense of call that he feels, and the the external call is the affirmation of that person's um, call by by the church family of his or her calling. So figuring out one's calling, the principle is, should never be done in isolation. There's an internal, I I have a feeling, a desire, and then an external, that this person is fit and gifted. That's the Reformed principle, which is important. 
Now, with that said about calling, I would argue a woman could never actually be called, if there's such a thing, a woman could never actually be called to pastoral ministry or to teach or exercise authority over men. And really, this, is, this is, principle is simple. God will never call someone to something he forbids or doesn't permit. God will never call someone to, to something he forbids or doesn't permit. And if the New Testament does not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men, then any sense of calling in a woman who desires that is not in line with Scripture. So whatever the feeling she is calling a calling is, it's, it's not from God. It's not from his word. But calling type language is typically very emotionally powerful. And it's sometimes very difficult to tell someone that this great desire they feel in their heart, which, which they sense as a calling from God, isn't actually a good thing. Or it's, it's not what God intends for their life. Which this, be, this goes beyond this study, but for these reasons, I think it would be wise for us to change the language we have about calling, especially in regard to pastoral ministry, even for men, because it is dangerously subjective about one's inward desire and feeling. And we should rather have the objective qualifications of elder be our main guide in how we gauge a man's fitness for pastoral ministry. But that's just my opinion. A lot of Christians disagree with me on that. Um, but the categories of external and internal call will do the same thing. It'll have the same parameters of you have an internal desire, good, and then an external, the church, affirming or denying that desire. Both of those things are essential. Now this gets to the final thing we're going to talk about, and this is a little more difficult, which is the issue of gifting, spiritual gifting and just natural gifting. Complementarians have some disagreement about this. And really the fundamental question is, does God gift women with the spiritual gift of teaching and administration or, or, or leadership in some way? I tend to believe God does gift women in these ways, as I see no evidence to suggest he doesn't. But I've heard other complementarians say, which I couldn't find anything in writing this week, but I've heard it argued frequently, that God doesn't gift women in these ways since they they can't teach or lead men in the church, so God doesn't gift them that way. That may be the case. I, I don't see it, at least not right now. And I think we all know women who are extremely gifted at teaching the Word of God and are gifted in leading in certain ways. I've at least met women like this. So the question or the objection is, if God has gifted women in these ways then surely God wants them to use these gifts in the formal teaching ministry of the church, including over men, or the church will be deprived in some way. Like the, the, the church is going to be deprived if we don't allow women to teach and lead men. And I would just simply say that women can and should exercise their gift to teach the Word of God, if they have that gift, in ways that are appropriate to the prohibitions in Scripture. So two really big avenues of gifted women can teach is to children and other women in a congregation. But, but here's the big principle that I think we should get down. Giftedness, giftedness never trumps Scripture's prohibitions. Giftedness never trumps Scripture's prohibitions. 
So no amount of giftedness or natural public speaking skills or leadership abilities should ever be the sole barometer of who does the teaching and leading in a congregation. Paul says, remember, Paul says men alone should teach and exercise authority over men in a congregation. He doesn't permit it for a woman to do that. And that means, and this is probably counterintuitive to many of us, but that means that even if there is a more gifted and talented woman in a congregation at teaching, she should never teach or exercise authority over men because Paul doesn't permit it. In God's good creational design, he's planned for men to teach and exercise authority in the community of believers. And one final thing, one of the qualifications to be an elder is to have, is to have the ability to teach and to rightly handle God's word. So if qualified men are the elders in a church, then a well-ordered, faithful church will never be starved for spiritual nourishment through the faithful teaching of the word. It just won't happen. That's, it's, it's outside of the design of the office of elder. So not allowing women to teach will never deprive a congregation of something they're missing. That, that is a big charge by egalitarians, that, that complementarians are deprived of spiritual nourishment because they don't allow half of the congregation to teach. But it just doesn't follow because qualified elders who are men will be able to teach. And therefore they will nourish the flock. So that's the last objection about calling and, and gifting. Any questions, comments? We're, we're out of time, but go ahead. Older women to teach younger women. So, I have been super glad to go through this this topic over the past couple months. Next week, we're starting a new study on a biblical theology of the Old Testament through a book called Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. We'll probably send something out about how to buy it. Um, but I'm super excited for that, and I've been extremely thankful for you guys and and all of your feedback, all of your questions, all your comments, and I pray that this this study um, will prove fruitful as we seek to submit our lives to God's Word, even in areas that, that the culture and the world are pressing on, actually, especially in those areas. So, thank you guys, and you are dismissed. <laughs>